Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 52, with the wisdom of Sarah Creek, Joe Polizzi, Zev Ash, Brian Freed, and Alan Beckley. You have to be patient. If you expect major results to happen in six to nine months, you're going to be severely disappointed. It takes a long time to build an audience, generally that nine to 18 month mark. So that's one. The second thing is they don't have a content tilt. You have to really ask yourself, what's your differentiation? Why you? Why should people care about what you're sending out by your podcast, your blog, or your email when there's a hundred other ones out there like it? You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Joe Polizzi literally wrote the book on content marketing and was gracious enough to go over some of the strategies in his book, Content Inc. with me. For more information, check out his podcast called The Content Inc. Podcast. Now, in your book, Content Inc., you talk about uh, the seven steps of starting a business using that model. Can you walk us through those briefly? Sure. Yeah. Briefly, I'll walk you through the seven steps. So the first two steps are figuring out your strategy. So the first is the sweet spot. So basically, what are you going to talk about? What, what are you going to create content around? The sweet spot is the intersection between what your expertise is, your knowledge or skill area that you have that you know, and what is your audience's desire on the other side? What's their pain point? So you have to figure out who is my audience, who are we going to target, be very specific, and then what can we deliver that's special to that audience that's going to solve a pain point. Great. That's step one. Step two, most important one where everybody gets it wrong is the content tilt, which is where that's obviously where the tilt comes from with the new business. It's where can you find an area of differentiation? What is your area of differentiation that you can cut through all the clutter and all the content out there to break through and build an audience? So what most organizations do is they create very similar content to 20, 30, 50, 100 other companies out there. I mean, just Google cloud computing and you'll find out, oh, Salesforce and Amazon and IBM, they all basically talk about cloud computing exactly the same way. There's really no differentiation there. Well, as entrepreneurs, we don't have a billion dollars in marketing like these companies do. We have to be smarter in order to break through. What's that differentiation area? So maybe it's focusing on a niche audience more than than nobody else is focusing on. Maybe uh, you've got a point of view or a sense of humor that's different. Maybe you're going to a platform like Twitch and you're going to stream and nobody else is on that platform. So you have to figure out some hook, some differentiation. Those are the first two, sweet spot, content, tilt. The next is building the base. This is where you're doing the work, you're creating the content and you pick for the most part, one platform, one channel to do this. You are a podcaster or you are a YouTube uh, series creator or you are a blogger or a writer or an email newsletter provider or whatever the case is. You focus on one and you're great there. Where a lot of people go wrong is they want to be everywhere on the internet at one time and you basically become jack of all trades, master of none. You're not great at anything. You can't build an audience and then you're like, okay, that didn't work. So what we are teaching people is focus on one that you can be great at. And you might test it out for a while, but ultimately with all the hundreds of case studies we looked at for the Content Inc. book, we found that focusing on one is where it happens and you diversify later and I'll get to that. So you have sweet spot, content tilt, then you build the base, then you're all about audience building. And when I say audience building, I'm not necessarily saying 
build Facebook followers or, um, or YouTube subscribers or anything like that, which is fine. There's no problem with that. But really what we want to do is get them to become email subscribers of yours. If you can, if you have an email offering, because you have the most control over that channel, whereas in Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, you have no control over that audience. You have no data. You have no direct connection with your audience. Basically, that's YouTube. That's Facebook. That's Google. They have all that power. So we want to make sure that's fine. You can start there, but you want to move over and build your audience. So that's the fourth step is you're really focusing on building an audience of hopefully email subscribers, and then you generate revenue. So that's where we get to the point where, okay, you should know your audience well enough. What what types of revenues are you going to launch? In the book, we talk about 10 different ones. So are you going to launch an event or a conference? Is it paid training? Do you have a product you're going to launch? Is it a consulting service? Uh, is it affiliate program? There's lots of different ways to generate revenue. So we're going to figure out, okay, what's the revenue that's going to make sense? Starter revenue and then ongoing, how are we going to really make a, a truly profitable business from this? And then once you find your revenue, you get to step six, and that's diversification of channel. So that's where I said in the beginning, in building your base, you're just focusing on one. Well, once you get to the more mature content entrepreneur level, that's when you're saying, okay, well, I have a blog and an email newsletter. Now I'm going to launch a podcast. Uh, From that podcast, I'm going to do maybe launch that takes six to nine months to really make things go. And then I'm going to launch a YouTube series. So basically, you're doing what all media companies have done since the dawn of time. You focus on one area, and then you diversify into others. Why do we do that? Because what we found in all the case studies is, is that if you get uh, audience members to subscribe to multiple things that you offer, they become better customers. They spend more with you. They stay longer with you. And so that's why we then diversify. And then the last step, this is where you make a decision. And this is where all the entrepreneurs make the decision. Are you going to sell? Or are you going to go big? We decided, my wife and I decided to sell. That was always our goal. We knew the number we wanted to sell at. We went through the process of selling. Uh, We knew what the valuation should be and ended up going that direction. Or do you want to go big? Do you want to scale up and become a truly big business? Um, There's a lot of things that go into that. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe you don't. I decided I didn't want to. I didn't want to go through all the mechanics and and hiring the amount of employees and HR and doing the things that, you know, people that have 300, 400, 500 employees do. So we ended up selling, but we talk about in the book, you can go either way. Uh, How do you do that? How do you get to the next level with those steps? So that's the seven steps of the content Inc model from start to finish. You're talking about a four or five year period. Uh, If you stick with the first nine to 12 months, which are the hardest, which is the hardest in any entrepreneurial startup, That's when you're building the audience, you're finding your voice, you're figuring out your differentiation and your content tilt. That's where it does take some time. But if you can get to that level and get to about month 16, 18, you start driving some revenue. Months 24, you're really starting to look at diversification. And then, you know, months, you know, 32. So basically into years three, four and five, that's when you're starting to say, hey, this thing is working. What are we going to do? What's the big picture? Are we going to sell or are we going to create this? amazing larger enterprise. What kind of mistakes should someone be wary of when they're getting into content marketing, especially for the first time and picking a niche or a topic? Well, the first thing is that we talked about, you have to be patient. If you expect major results to happen in six to nine months, you're going to be severely disappointed. 
it takes a long time to build an audience, generally that nine to 18 month mark. So that's one. The second thing is they don't, they don't have a content tilt. You have to really ask yourself, what's your differentiation? Why you? Why should people care about what you're sending out by your podcast, your blog, or your email when there's a hundred other ones out there like it? It frustrates me, Greg, so many people that say, oh yeah, I'm going to do a podcast for entrepreneurs. All right. Great. What kind of entrepreneurs? Not just entrepreneurs. Oh, come on. You can't be specific enough if you do that. Like even you're doing focusing on over 40 entrepreneurs. You're focusing on an area that's differentiated that you can be the expert in the world. So finding that tilt is really important. And then the, the last thing I would say is consistency is where so many content entrepreneurs fall down. So if you have a podcast and it's a weekly podcast, you deliver that podcast the same time, about the same length every week, and you're going to do so for the next five years, most likely. Now, you could change it a little bit. You could tweak it. You may have gotten some feedback. The format's not right. Um, so let's say you do an email newsletter. You do you put that out every, uh, we do every Tuesday morning and every Friday morning at the Tilt. And we send that out at seven o'clock and we haven't missed it since, we haven't missed a, a second since we launched in April. We know that we're going to have to do that for the next year, two years, three years to build that audience. That's a promise you're setting for your customers. And if you miss that, you break that promise, you might never get that audience back again. I would say consistency and that content tilt are probably the two biggest areas that people fail other than the fact that they want to be everywhere on the web. Oh, I got to be on Twitter. I got to be on Facebook. I got to be on Instagram. I got to do email. I got to do podcasts. And my answer is no, you don't be wherever you can be great. So that may be, you're going to, you might create the podcast and you're going to focus on Twitter. Great. Do those things well, and then forget everything else for a while until you have the resources to be great on other, in other ways. Okay. Now you, you talked about the content tell and you define it as uh, the area of little to no competition on the web that you know, can give you a chance to break through the noise and be relevant and be heard. And you, you talked a little bit about, about this, but what are some good ways to find and test it? So the, my favorite tool in the world is Google trends. And a lot of people just either don't know about it or don't use it. So basically Google trends, uh, is a bunch of data that Google puts out on what people are searching for. And they have, terms that say, okay, these terms are solid terms. These are the terms that are used by most people and other ones are breakout terms. And I love to look at the breakout terms. So for example, if I put in, uh, you know, for me, it was custom publishing and I typed in custom publishing and they'll say, oh yeah, custom publishing is very popular here. Here's over the time, uh, over the last two years, how many people have searched for it. But on the bottom right-hand corner, it'll say, you know, emerging top associated topics. And there would have, been, would have been, oh, content marketing. Wow, that's interesting that that's associated with it. And so it'll, it'll talk about breakout terms. So I love to look at breakout terms. So that's the one area I would look at. The other th area that I love uh, is to actually create your own category. And staying on the topic about what we did, you know, we chose to go after content marketing. Not a lot of people were going that direction. We felt that that was going to be the thing and it worked out really well. And what's great about that is when it's popularized and people start to search for stuff, they're gonna find your stuff because you were the one talking about it first. We've tried to do the same thing at the tilt with Content Entrepreneur. Content Entrepreneur was not 
a phrase used by anybody, but I believe it it best encapsulates what we're trying to do. It's like, oh, it's an entrepreneur. Oh, they're using content. Great. Got that entrepreneur, put it together. So that's what we're trying to popularize so that when people start to associate themselves by that, they end up finding our resource and going that way. So I would look at those types of things. And again, surveys are a must, you know, talk to your customers. I cannot tell you how many people just don't I mean, you maybe can't get on the phone today anymore, but you can certainly message people. You can send out formal surveys. You can get data. So get some information about what's going on and then take it another step and say, okay, this is the opportunity. This is the opportunity. Probably the the number one opportunity then with really finding that content tilt is taking your audience and going a little bit deeper and a little bit more niche. So if you are just use the engineering example, you know, you can't be the leading expert in the world to just engineers or consumers who like to travel or entrepreneurs, but that's where most people start. So you really have to take it and start to break those down into small niches and say, we need to get to a point where we can actually be the resource for the industry for that audience. And you have to break your audience down there into a, into some targeting niches or it's not going to work. You talked a little bit about Google Trends, and I've used that before. What are the number of, of hits that would be relevant, that would be worth pursuing, and how big would be too big? So, tough question to answer. I guess the way that I would put it is you can't go too niche. Most people think that, oh, I can't focus on If there's only an audience of, you know, I only think there's a thousand of these out there. Well, maybe maybe there are a thousand now, but maybe, maybe in a year, there's going to be 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever. I don't want necessarily concerned about the numbers. What I want to make sure is we want to break through with all the competition that's going on. So that's what I'm more concerned about. So if there's, and you, that's where you can figure out and do easy things like Google trends and Google searches to figure out. So if you typed in something like traveling in Florida, well, how many people are creating content about traveling in Florida? Well, it's, it's ungodly. I mean, there's there's big media companies, there's small content creators, there's influencers, there's thousands and thousands of people creating content full time to help people who want to travel in Florida. But what if, if there's just to traveling to Bradenton Beach? Oh, well, well now I've now I've got um, maybe fifty people. What if I'm talking about traveling to a certain part of Bradenton Beach? You know, that's the kind of thing I'm getting to. And, and Google can help you get there and really look and help say, okay, well, these, and you can figure out who's advertising to those areas, who's paying for ads in it, how many people are there, how many pages are around there. Put it into Google Trends and figure out, you know, what are some of those different searches? That's where you find the gold nuggets, where you'll put in a type of about traveling to Florida. And then you'll go down in the lower right hand corner and I'll say, well, these are the breakout terms. Look at those breakout terms and then, but also at the same side, you know, what are, what are you proficient in? What's your skill and your expertise? So that you want to combine those two, those two come together with your audience's need. They want to travel to Bradenton Beach, let's say. And then what your expert is, you're, you understand people who like to boat or people who, uh, you know, like to kayak. Okay, now you're starting to come together and you're starting to figure out something where you get a content mission statement that is focused on a very particular audience on a very particular topic that you can be an expert in. My next guest, Ziv Ash, also had just released his own book on marketing called How to Get the Most Out of Marketing. 
an action plan for small business owners. In it, he also discussed some of the marketing concepts that he covers in his book. Since then, he has also started his own podcast called The Entrepreneur Next Door. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. In your book, you state that marketing has been getting really increasingly complex because of human decision-making behavior, which is often not as predictable as we'd like it to be. Anxious customers make irrational decisions to just get it over with, like opting for the lowest price instead of value. Can you give us some more examples of this in real life? There are people out there, and sometimes you, I, I might not be able to help myself and go into a rant about the, the pseudo-fake self-promoted marketing gurus, but there are enough people out there who claim that they figured out marketing. And for me, marketing is 100% human behavior, right? We all need customers. Customers are human. Humans make decisions. And contrary to the common perception that maybe we figured it out, we really haven't. And uh, there are some things that we can potentially predict, but most of it, and I go into this in the book, um, you know, the fake experts and the gurus, they never, ever ran a company in their life, but they figured out how to use email and subject lines and maybe Facebook. So they come up with templated things that they say they work. Uh, the, the, the good news is they don't work. The bad news is people buy their stuff and they only realize much later. And the thing I say in the book about marketing is marketing is actually really straightforward and a common sense discipline. But because of the complexities of the world we live in, meaning everyone who wants to be a business owner can. All you need is a laptop with Wi-Fi and you can create a website and you can make up testimonials if you want and you're in business. And so the universe is filled with competitors, some that we know and some that we don't know. The end result is that everyone that has a business that engages in marketing spews out stuff out there. And I call that digital noise. That what's incoming to us as consumers and to our own customers is nonstop barrage, avalanche of crap. Buy for me, buy for me, buy for me. And the result of the overwhelming avalanche is human behavior. When we are confronted with too many choices, the lizard brain gets into action because too many choices means discomfort, anxiety. And so when we feel that, we do one of two things, right? Seek, seek pleasure, avoid pain. So being overwhelmed and being anxious is painful. We want to get out of it. So if we have to make a buying decision, one of the irrational behaviors that many consumers make when they're under pressure, they'll just pick the lowest price. And the reason they pick the lowest price is not because it's necessarily the better product. It's because the decision comes to an end. The overwhelming stage now ended. It's a form of pleasure, right? I'm not anxious anymore. I have to make that decision, right? That's one of the typical ones that we fight as marketers and as business owners all the time. No matter what business you're in, including mine as, as growth and marketing consulting for businesses, uh, including any of my clients, when the first question somebody asks is how much do you charge, 
it gets you to shudder because it should not be the first question. And I'm not saying the price is not important. It's incredibly important. But it should never be the first question. And usually it's sort of a telltale sign when you deal with somebody who meets you for the first time and the first question out of their mouth is, what do you charge? I typically answer it with, why does it matter? Because it seems like a stupid answer, right? Of course it matters. But why do you focus on price? And we try to understand to kind of peel off the onion and get to, so why are you asking? And, and I have to tell you, in my business, more often than not, people ask that question because they've been burnt by so many fake agencies and coaches and people that claim to be marketing experts. They've been burnt to the tune of a lot of money but they realize that they still need help when it comes to marketing. Uh, so the question is, how much you charge? If I told them that I charge $5,000 a month, they might run away because they don't trust me. They don't know me, rightfully so. But the, the memories of, of the previous burnout and the money that they sacrificed is driving that decision. My role, my goal is to get them to relax and say, listen, I don't want you to hire me. Let's talk about your business. Let's talk about what went right, what went wrong. Let's see if we can identify what were the issues. And then we can talk about it later on. What, what I try to do when I do this is to really get them out of anxiety mode into, listen, at the end of the conversation, and those usually I take at least an hour, at the end of the conversation, it's totally up to you. If you feel comfortable, we can continue. If you don't, you'll learn one of a few things from me during the conversation, and I wish you the best, and that's okay. So this is the big one, Greg. It's it's the, the most irrational decision that, that comes out of that state of anxiety and, and the barrage of options and the burnout before. How do you really define what business are you in and what is marketing chutzpah? And I'm hoping I pronounce that right. Yeah, no, you did. You're you're almost a convert to Judaism. I'm proud of you. <laughs> One of the early questions that we tackle with, with clients, and I encourage every business to go through it, is the question is, what business are you really in? And it, it's not something that I can give you a templated answer because it really depends on the business. And we and we dig through every aspect of the business, particularly customers, the different customer segments, the competition, every single competitor, you have to understand the universe that you are catering to in order to define what business are you in. So in the book, I give a couple examples. The best example that I use in public speaking and in workshops is JetBlue Airlines, which most people are familiar with. So if you go back to when JetBlue came on the scene, they literally took the air travel world by storm. Everybody was talking about JetBlue. You get on a plane, you fly, there's a TV in a seat in front of you. You can watch TV while you fly. People are nice to you. If you want an extra bag of, of pretzels, the flight attendant will smile, give you another bag, not give you an attitude like some of the major airlines. All along from point A to point B, nothing but great experience. So... What did the JetBlue founders answer the question, 
what business are we in? Right? So when you ask somebody, what business is, is American Airlines in? Some of the answers you're going to get are they're in the airline business, they're in the flying business, they're in the transportation business, or an answer that people give me very often, which is wrong, they're in the customer service business. Customer service is not a business. It's something that we do. So those are the typical answers, right? Airline, transportation, flying. And the answer is absolutely not. And they nailed it. They understood something that all the major airlines missed all along, despite their size, their resources, et cetera, and their brand. And one of the things that the JetBlue founders sat around and talked about was, what is it about flying that needs disruption? What is it about flying that makes it an unpleasant experience? And for most of us, almost everything, right? People hate to fly because they're scared floating up at 37,000 feet, hoping it doesn't fall. Getting to the airport, checking in your luggage, it's too big, it's too heavy, standing online, going through security, waiting for the plane, then there's a delay. And then you sit in the plane, 20, two, three, four, five, six, seven hours. It's boring. Yes, they have TVs up in the middle and you have your earphones. Sometimes they don't work. And then you have the seat in front of you. And just as they serve the meals, the guy decides to recline his seat just right into your, your tray of food. It's just miserable. And so they said, what can we do to disrupt that? And they came up with a solution. Brand new planes, TVs in the seat pocket, a training in a culture that serves customers, but in a way that's willingness to serve, not just because I have to, not because it's a job. They trained everybody from the flight attendants to the ticket agents to the pilots who greet you when you come on the plane. Everybody's super friendly. Then you watch TV. Then you could get some food. Let me explain what chutzpah is. It's sort of like having the, the guts to do something unheard of. So if I went to a bald guy and said, excuse me, can I borrow your hairbrush? That's sort of like chutzpah, right? Because he's a bald guy. He's not going to carry hairbrush. So with JetBlue, the marketing chutzpah was at the end of the flight, can you imagine the chutzpah of the airline to ask our passenger to clean up the plane so that they could do a quick changeover and, and take off for the next flight? So I'm a full, fair-paying customer. I'm paying to fly your plane, and then you're asking me to clean up, right? That's chutzpah. And people are doing it willingly. <laughs> people love it because... They understand that for JetBlue to keep their pricing so competitive as they were and to continue to grow and to continue to be available for us with a, a good experience, then, yeah, nobody ever says, how dare you ask me to do it? You clean up. They do it. They do it willingly. So the answer in a JetBlue case, the answer to what business are we in, we're in the travel experience business, okay? Not transportation, not flying, not airplanes, but travel experience. And that's what they identified as the disruptor that's going to change the industry. And they did. More, a lot of companies copy them today, but this was the JetBlue 
marketing chutzpah. Brian Freed of Inventor Smart came on and gave a number of tips on how to move forward with your own invention and shared several of his own with us. We hope to have him back on again soon. Brian also has his own podcast called God Invention Radio. Can you walk us through coming up with an idea and commercializing it? First thing, like I said earlier, you must be real and challenge if it's already out there. And if it is, what's making yours different than what's already out there? Is it in the public domain? Is it something that you're able to get some intellectual property protection on? So that's really important to me. And that's what I like to tell other people. Then if it's something that I decide to move forward with, then what I would do is I would make a prototype and I would try to get it to as close as possible to the real thing. I rip things up if I need to that already exist. I might have 3D printing done to be able to just make it look like something and then possibly make it work like something. So I think the prototyping uh, part is important, especially if you want to use it down the road to be able to present in the direction that you may want to go. Um, Once I get it to a good point, then I'll protect it, possibly with a provisional patent application, which will give me the right for one year to say that I'm patent pending while I explore the market. So I work with engineers or product designers, figure out what the material might look like, what the cost might look like of if I was going to manufacture it, or I might license it. So that's the fork in the road to figure out, is it something that you want to license to earn royalties or you want to manufacture? So I mentioned earlier that it's important most of the time to have intellectual property if you're going to license it to earn royalties. Those are the things that I go through to figure out if it's something that is going to make me money or not. And that's the challenge is if I'm going to manufacture it myself, am I ready to connect up with a manufacturer, handle the the inventory that comes in, packaging, barcoding, all the logistics of inventory and warehousing and shipping and accounts payable, accounts receivable, the marketing, the advertising. There's a lot there, but you're taking a risk and hopefully there's a greater reward. And you want to make sure that your margins are there to be able to make it worthwhile. And that's what I do is I challenge when people come to me with ideas, I challenge to see if it's something that makes sense. If you're making something and it's ending up costing you $5 to make and a consumer wouldn't pay more than $6 for it, most likely it's going to be tough. Either you have to look at the manufacturing or you have to figure out maybe it's not something that you can end up doing. Maybe it's something for a potential licensee. You know what I mean? So those are the things that I try to balance and challenge to see what direction makes sense for people. A lot of people also want to make things in the US and that's amazing. And I do too. But if uh, it costs me $5 to make and a consumer is going to pay no more than $5 for it, then it's tough. Nobody wins. I can't be in business and you can't buy my product. So sometimes you have to go overseas. Other products I have made in the US. So Those are the type of things that you have to challenge yourself with to see, again, is it going to make sense to put your time, money, energy, effort into it to see the return? Otherwise, like to make you feel good is great. But when you're putting all this in, it's a business and you want to make money with it. So that's uh, that's what I evaluate. Now, are there ever any instances where you advise people not to worry about a patent? Yeah, absolutely. I I could talk like the last couple of inventors that I guided through in in our sessions. A lady came up with an interesting bag 
and it had some interesting features to it. But instead of really going crazy with the extras, she said, you know what? I just, I want to do this. And I said, here's something really similar. Most likely you're not going to be able to get intellectual property on it. So here's a bag that already exists. You can put your name on, you can buy them, put your name on it and sell it. And then you have another bag. And then she wanted to build a, a business. So she worked on unique looking type of bags with her print on it to be able to make her own product line. So when there's things that are really coming close to what you came up with and you might get the patentability opinion back from a patent agent or attorney that realistically you're not going to be able to get intellectual property protection, then you have to make a decision if you're going to go into business with it or not. And if you don't want to do that, then you'll wait for your next idea. And if you do, then maybe you can find something that already exists so you don't have to spend the money on engineering and prototyping and manufacturing and you can buy what already exists and you can take the money that you made from that and roll it into a new design that you might call your own but may not necessarily get patented and maybe if it sells well somebody else might sell it too they can make it but you might have come up with a good trademarkable name and that could be the winner that really makes it like just like when i gave you the example of the snuggie greg the snuggie you weren't able to patent, but it was a good name. It was a good trademarkable name. So you can build good assets from having a good trademarkable name. Okay. What are some of the common mistakes that you see inventors make? There was a couple that I mentioned here along the way of coming up with ideas and going through the steps. Number one is searching with your eyes closed and not being real with yourself to know that it's out there. Thinking that your idea is great from your gut and your emotions and not from your head. You're always thinking with your head, but a lot of times you think with your emotions. Now I want you to think from a business perspective of, is it something that your investment that you're putting into yourself with time, money, energy, effort, is it something that's going to be a return for you? So make business decisions, not emotional decisions in anything in life, especially with inventions, right? Most of the time, People are working, have, like you don't wake up and you say, I'm going to get a job as an inventor. You're working somewhere and this is something that you want to do that eventually can convert into something that's a revenue generator for you, whether it's residual or maybe it's your full-time experience that you're putting in and your salary and your income and everything else. You can do it gradually. There's a lot of people that are limited on funds to start with. You don't have to do it immediately. Save up have milestones. Okay, I have enough money to do this. What's next? I have enough money to do this. You might after the first milestone be done and then you'll save up and the next idea that you come up with, you'll work on that one. So a lot of times people just drop everything they do, go full force into what they have. They end up starting at step seven when they should really start at step one. So that patent search back again, all the way in the beginning is what you should do and be real and then just keep going. And the other thing, which is really important, Greg, is that just because you tell somebody your idea doesn't mean that you're obligated to them. Like anything in life, you do your due diligence, you ask, you get references. You want to know that they're the right person. If you call them and they don't return your call, and then you call them again, and they don't return your call, and you call them again, and you finally talk to them, and you tell them, what kind of experience do you want? Do you want somebody to be a chaser? Like most of the time, that's how they might be. 
do you want, was it a choppy conversation, but now you still exposed your idea to them. So you think you're obligated. You're not just if you were building something in your house, Greg, you want to get some references. You want to get some, some other estimates, right? So just because this is something that could be life changing, that could change your life. If it ends up being something that's really popular or make you a ton of money, you still have to start with the business decisions. And I keep going back to a couple of these things because they're so important. And then just to keep your mind open and learn and explore and take in what you can and go to trade shows and listen to what people are saying, but get the right information. Everybody has different opinions on things. So you want to work with somebody that understands where you're coming from, tells you the truth, respectable, respectful, calls you back, responds to your messages. You know what I mean? So it's your choice who you want to work with. And I find that a lot of people end up, I I can talk because I'm an inventor, that we end up getting vulnerable sometimes. And I did that in the beginning, but not anymore. And I treat people the way I want to be treated. So you want to be able to find people that will do the right thing. And you find out by asking questions and asking other people if they've used them or not. Sarah Creek had retired and started her own online clothing business where she specializes in beautiful women's jackets and kimonos. She talked about how she was able to transition from a lifetime of healthcare administration to running her own business and some of the challenges that she's faced. Now there's a quote on your Instagram page that reads, I'm a believer in the power of knowledge and the ferocity of beauty. So from my point of view, your life is already artful waiting, just waiting for you to make it art. And that's by, I believe, Toni Morrison. That's right. That's what does right. that quote mean to you? It means basically that art is already within us. I think that the more we learn, the more we blossom, the more we become. And I think that we have to just be not be fearless and, and just express it because it, it already lives within us. It's just a matter of expressing our inner beauty and use the knowledge that we've acquired to really showcase uh, who we are and show ourselves to the world. What motivates you to keep you know, moving forward? My family motivates me. I want to have a legacy for, you know, my children are adults, but I have grandchildren that are coming up and I want them to follow in those footsteps. I want them to know that the American dream doesn't just happen overnight. You have to work at it. You have to really put it all together and not be afraid to fail, not be afraid to uh, go for it. That's what keeps me motivated. I just have to keep moving. Some of my family members say, well, you retired. I said, well, I didn't retire. I switched careers. (laughs) I just changed what I'm doing. I'm not taking the subway to an office. I am going upstairs to my studio to create that's the motivation. It's an internal motivation, but it's also to try to change some mindsets and to try to change views and to try to change the lives of others. What are some of the mindsets and views that you'd like to change? As I said, I'm a Latina, I'm an Afro-Latina, and I want us to embrace our African heritage. I want people to switch their mindset and think about how beautiful the culture is. I want people to really believe that they can do anything. Women to believe that they don't have to be constrained by circumstances. 
that no matter where they are, they can move forward from there and they can do whatever uh, they want to do. I always want to be an example. I want to be a, a walking example of what it's like to go for something and accomplish it. In terms of mindset, there's a lot of beauty in ethnicity. There's a lot of beauty in Africanness. There's a lot of beauty in, in Hispanic cultures. I want everyone to embrace that and to really see it in a different way. Now, can you already see that you're making a little bit of a difference in your grandchildren? And probably a little bit is not right the right word, <laughs> but can you see that you've made some differences? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I have a granddaughter who's in college and she um, shares with me her experiences. When she talks to others about me, she talks about my accomplishments. She talks about what I've done. She Uh, talks about how fearless I am. I think that that example, it's important uh, for me to pass along. I think I see it. I see it already. The younger ones just love their grandma. The lessons that I'm imparting, they pick them up. I see it, you know, every day. Sometimes there's a little fear, fear uh, of grandma. What is she going to say about what I'm doing? Because they know my standards and they know what I expect from them. And they're rising to, to the occasion. Do you have a physical shop or is everything that you create and sell online? I create everything myself in my studio and I sell everything online and occasionally on pop-up shops. So this last summer I was in the Berkshire fair in the Berkshires of Massachusetts and I sold quite a bit of pieces there. So if I have the right uh, pop-up shop, the right uh, market, I will go physically and bring my, my clothing. And then sometimes people order at that shop, at that uh, market. I don't have a physical shop. I hope to one day, but right now it's mostly online. I sell on a couple of platforms that I sell my clothing. Now, it looks like you specialize mainly in women's jackets and kimonos. You do everything yourself from designing to sewing, or do you have anybody that helps you? That so matter? right now I do everything myself. I have... People who help me with other things like shipping, but I like to have my hands in my design, the creation. Everything I make is sort of limited and limited quantities because I select the fabrics, I select okay. the design, I create it myself, and then I ship it out. As I grow, I'm looking to add other partners who can assist in that, but I always want to be the main designer of the clothing that I make. And then I have other people who can help me with shipping them and to fulfill all the orders. Now, how are your customers finding you? Facebook ads are, you know, one of the main ways. Instagram, we post on Instagram and um, on the website. So I use Google and Google Analytics and Google My Business so that people can find me that way. So I'm on the website at www.seams.nyc. It's where I mostly sell my clothes. I also have an Etsy shop. Uh, where you can find it. Again, the same name seems NYC. I think that the pop-up shops are just an, a really great opportunity for you to not only to get your stuff out there, but to maybe capture some customers or at least get them thinking. One of the okay. great things about pop-up shops is that I can talk to people directly. A website is great. It's efficient, especially now when a lot of people are not going out to stores. 
but going to um, a market and a pop-up shop, people will come and they feel the clothes and they feel the fabric and they ask me questions. One of the things that I do is I customize some of the styles. If somebody wants something a little shorter or um, a different kind of fabric, I can do that and, and they can talk to me directly and we can have that conversation. It's always a great way to do it as long as it's the right shop for the right market. I found that to be successful. Before you started Seams NYC, were you pretty proficient in social media or was there been a learning curve? No, I use social media mostly for family and sharing photos of my, my kids and my grandkids and my partners and all that. I thought I knew how to use it until I started a business and I had to engage someone. I, I have a team who are, are proficient in that. I learned a lot. I'm still learning. There's some things that I didn't know how to do before that I'm very good at now, but I also use a group of professionals who know how to post and, and know how to do that. It's really always great to surround yourself with some experts to, to help you shine. Our final guest, Alan Beckley, walked us through inventing his own product, the Wonder Wallet, and how he got it on DRTV. Alan also has his own podcast called Inventors Helping Inventors. So check it out. How should somebody validate their idea, both to make sure that it's viable as well as to make sure that it's not already out there? Such a great question. Very near and dear to my heart. And it, to do a little commercial, it's one of the key parts of the boot camp for inventors that we do about once a month. How do you validate your product? Well, one of the first things that you should do is to compare it against other successful products. There's seven key parameters that you can use, and it's not just inventive products. And some of them are pretty much common sense, like is the market for it, or there are millions of people who would buy it potentially. You don't want a niche product, ideally. And can it be have a 3x to 5x markup? This is super crucial. It, your cost should be about 20% of the retail sales price, or it will not be successful. Or does it solve some kind of a problem or something that will make people you know, feel like it's compelling and they want to buy it. So doing that due diligence to compare it that way. And then secondarily, doing a lot of research to see if it already is out there or it already exists. And very frequently it does. There's 11 million issued patents, most of which have never seen the light of day. And if you're going to, you know, license it, you very likely will need to have a patent on it. And if something from 30 years ago, is sitting there in the patent office that's quite similar to yours, you probably won't get a patent for it. So doing that due diligence, seeing that it really is a genuine need, or it's a product that would solve a problem in a way that would be enticing and interesting to people and somewhat compelling, and that it can be made and manufactured at a price that is profitable for everybody would be some of the key steps to validating the product if that makes sense. Okay. So like maybe describing your product on Google and then going to the images, taking a look that way. That's a good one. Um, That's a good place to start. I always say that the two A's plus plus uh, Google, I say Amazon, Alibaba, and Google and Google Images is a great place to get started because you will find lots and lots of things there, even qvc.com and hsn.com, because every month they debut products that haven't been seen anywhere else. But it's frustrating to inventors to go through this research process, but it's one of the best things they will ever do because otherwise they could spend thousands of dollars on a product that 
two, three years down the road, they find out they're not going to get a patent for it. And if they had done some due diligence in the beginning, they could have saved themselves a lot of money. What actually is the life of a patent? If you were to find something that had, we'll say, for example, had been out 30 years or had been patented 30 years ago, has that necessarily expired? Yeah, it has actually. It's 20 years from the filing date that the maximum time you can get for a patent. You couldn't obviously patent it again, but you could conceivably create the product yourself and market it, manufacture it yourself and sell it. They're probably, you probably couldn't license it to anybody. Yeah. And it's not quite that cut and dry because there are things that do license that aren't even patented. And there's lots of things in the marketplace selling that aren't patented for one, like you just described, it's a crowded marketplace and you couldn't get a patent on it, but still it's unique enough to sell. The thing to think about is it's not just whether or not it's patented. It's if there's something in the public domain anywhere then that would make it unpatentable if the patent examiner says, oh, well, this product exists in the public domain, even if it's not a patented product. So the bar is kind of high on patenting. Yeah, I think I remember watching the Shark Tank episode with the reader rest where the Uh guy had the little magnetic clip on his shirt and he put glasses in. And I thought, yeah, I can see using that. Yeah, yeah. And then I thought a pen would be good. Yeah. And I went on and I think I looked on patents.google.com and lo and behold I think Charles Krauthammer had patented it the former political pundit how interesting I think he had quite a few actually but that was my moment in the 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 sun that lasted all of like I think three and a half minutes even uh, Michael Jackson had a patent on an item that would sort of nail into the floor that could connect with his shoes so he could lean back at an impossible angle. This mm-hmm. is where he came up with this for one of his videos where he leans way far back or way, I think it's way far forward. And the heels of the shoe were being held tightly to the floor. So he could do this seemingly impossible to, you know, task. So, and there was a patent in his name for that. So, so going back to, I have this great idea for a product and assuming I hadn't already found it. Can you walk us through the the steps to commercializing it? Sure. After you've done, as we talked about earlier, your due diligence and your validation where you feel like you've really got something, and that's not just talking to your friends and family. Ideally, show it to somebody at a store that would be a potential buyer and ask them their opinion. Do you think this might sell in your store, et cetera? But then once you think you've got something, then you would at least file probably a provisional patent application which just gives you one year of being able to say that you're patent pending and it doesn't cost much. And then the next thing is to start doing some research on what kind of companies might buy it. Here I'm recommending the idea of licensing as opposed to building a business around it. You can do that, but I've done both, but venturing can be very expensive. Licensing means somebody else takes the product on for you and pays you a royalty. So doing some research and to see what companies have maybe similar product lines and where your product would be of a benefit to them and give them an additional bite at the apple or something that's of value. And then the process of getting in touch with them, which most inventors don't enjoy doing, but trial and error, et cetera. And then seeing if you get a chance to um, pitch it to them in a short meeting and show them why it might be a great product for them and see where it goes from there. Are there any instances where it's advisable not to get a patent or just 
Not necessary. You may not be able to make a broad blanket statement, but what I would say is lots of toys are not patented for a simple reason. And that is it typically takes about three years for a patent to issue. And the lifetime of probably 90% of new toys in the marketplace is less than three years. In other words, it flies and it dies inside of three years. So why would you spend thousands of dollars to get a patent for something that by the time your patent issues, it's it's already done, so to speak? That's what I've heard as to a reason why a lot of toys, there are some that are patented, but a lot of toys are not patented for that reason. Roger Brown is an interesting man who's had a lot of success, and he doesn't patent anything, but his approach is he does do a provisional patent, you know, just while he's introducing it to them. And he makes them a deal and says, look, if you want to license my product, then I will let you take on the utility patent. In other words, you can file and pay for the utility patent and it will be in your name. In other words, as long as you're selling my product, right? But if and when the, the deal terminates, then the patent would then be assigned back to me. And he's done that for probably 20 years and had quite a bit of success with it. So that's a creative way where he wouldn't take on the expense of patenting. How would you go about finding a uh, partner to to license with today? So what I would do is kind of similar to what we just described is I would say, okay, what is my product? Let's say it's a travel-related product. That's another area that's often good. People doing air travel or what have you. And then I would say, so what is the unique or compelling sales point of this product and what kinds of companies might be interested in having that? So it could be somebody like American tourister or somebody that makes baggage and things like that. Would it be something that would be something nice for them to have? And then do some research and try to think broadly, what are a variety of different companies that it might be worth approaching that would see some benefit in it? And then it's, you know, then it's just kind of a trial and error and seeing seeing what works and where there's interest, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that does. I I can imagine where LinkedIn would probably could come in very handy with that. It is. In fact, Stephen Key has written a book about specifically using LinkedIn. I don't remember the title of it, but using LinkedIn as a resource for one to find company names and who some of the company officers are. So that's, that's actually quite a good resource to get you started down that way as well. Okay. Now, you're in negotiations with the company. What's a fair royalty deal? You know, are we talking like 60%, 70% for me, or which sounds pretty good, but I'm also thinking I might be overreaching. You are way overreaching, but I'll explain why. I, there's no such thing as an absolute typical royalty, so there's kind of a range, and it's small. In other words, in DRTV, a royalty can be 2 or 3% of gross sales all the way up to maybe 7% for other, certain kinds of products. And at first it seems like, well, that's not fair. That's hardly anything. Well, if you look at it in the right way, a company that's successful, All Star Products is a great example. At the end of the day, for all the things they do, they make about a 10% net profit margin on all their sales. So if they're paying you a 2% royalty, effectively for every $10 coming in and profit to them, they're giving you two of them. So that's not such a bad deal, right? But a lot of inventors are very short-sighted and they get too greedy and they tell a company they want to say 5% royalty. Sometimes people say that's an average royalty and it's it, the standard deviation is too high, but let's just say it's an average royalty. And the company comes back and says, well, we never pay more than 4%. 
And the inventor is like, oh, well, uh, uh, and thinks they're trying to rip them off. And they walk away with no deal when they could have had a great deal with a 4% royalty. It was a whole lot better than nothing. So that pride is very expensive. I call it inventor greed. Get the best deal you can and then move on because that deal may be much better than you thought it was. Yeah. So, yeah. That sounds like it'd be a very good deal, actually. It'd be a very good deal, actually. Yeah. The, other, the other one, while I'm on the subject, is... If there's two parts that give you an idea to the extent that the royalty is a good deal for you. It's what I call the footprint. How many stores are they going to get it into? Times the royalty. So when you say DRTV only pays maybe 2%, sometimes you think, well, that's a rip. Oh my gosh, all these other people paying 5%. But if it goes in 10,000 stores at that 2%, and this other manufacturer would have it in 3,000 stores at 5%, I'm thinking you're coming out in a pretty good deal with that 2% royalty after after all. So you really have to look at the whole picture to make a decision. Check out the newly redesigned Entrepreneurs Over 40 website at www.entrepreneursover40.com. While you're there, sign up to get updates from us. Also, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.